Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone who's ever been out on a date with a fellow clone. Prepare yourselves to receive your 54th Weird Dose of X. As always, we remain the mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I am your host, Jason, broadcasting from the -the state-of-the-art Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And here with me once again is our returning hero, the prodigal co-host, Ruben. Now, Ruben, I hear you've been doing a lot of fencing lately. Can you, can you tell us about that? It sounds fascinating. Actually, funny enough, I was a fencer in high school. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Another one of my random, uh, Jim will make fun of me for being a nerd hobbies. Nerd! He would, he would never do such a thing. Yeah, no. Nerd! So, the, your current fencing, though, is more, more like what, like, Two-handed sword, bastard sword. This is not throwing stuff. So yeah, I dig a bunch of holes in my yard oh. and attach lumber to poles and put in cement. So yeah, this is not the home improvement show and I'm not equipped to do home improvement at all. But fortunately, I have a father-in-law who is very adept with this sort of stuff. That is very, very helpful. Yeah, but our fences were falling over, which is nuts. That is not good, no. Yeah. So maybe your father-in-law can do another show on this network all about home improvement stuff. That could really fill out a, a niche there somehow. <laughs> you should talk to him about that. The two of you yes. be good. Well, okay. It'll be well, the soccer home improvement. Hour, yes. Hour, yes. <laughs> well, that's a whole other show. Today, we have two X-Men books to talk about, of all things. Uh, they both have kind of a lot going on with them. Uh, these books are X-Men number 24 and the final Before the Fall one-shot. Kieran Gillen's Sinister Four. So without too much further silliness, let's head on into X-Men number 24, Once an X-Man, dot, dot, dot. Written by Jerry Duggan, art by Joshua Kassara, colors by Frank Martin, designed by Tom Muller, with Jay Bowen. So, Pogger Pog is back in Pogger Pog Pog form, which is a joke I made last week, but I like it a lot, so I'm going to do it again. Uh, he's on the cover of the issue. And I, I guess that's what we'd have to call the main story of this issue. But I don't think it's the most interesting part. No. So in this issue, Jerry Duggan is trying to both kind of fill up a slot because we have the Hellfire Gala coming and got to put out something. And he also seems to have some pieces he wants to put into place uh, before that happens. So given that the Gala is nearly upon us, this will be, I guess, the last issue of X-Men with this particular team. It, it seems like we still haven't really gotten to know some of them. They feel quite new, but... I guess their their term is done. Yeah, let's hope this is the final Hellfire Gala. I have I, I kind of enjoy those types of issues, but the constant rotating cast of the X Men is getting a little frustrating. I, I don't get a sense of anyone other than like the core characters that we've always had, and it seems like uh, spoiler the team is not long for the team. So you know we're getting. Yeah, I don't mind the idea of the cast changing, but the idea that it's like forced to change every twelve issues seems limiting yeah x-men has always had people come on and go off right but it just it feels sort of like some of these stories have not come to fruition right like there's more to tell with them but we don't get that we just get a forced okay you're you're done time to get off the x-men because he got voted out yep or just they you know there's a need to to turn over because that's what we said we're going to do yeah it's i mean things we're told are really going to change at the gala this year so Maybe it will be the last one. Okay, first let's talk about the Pogger Pog bit. So, who is Pogger Pog? He's actually a little orc-like creature from a menth, and on his own, he's kind of a wimp, but you almost always see him wearing this giant crocodile monster suit that makes him into a badass. And he talks in bad rhymes, kind of like uh, the demon Etrigan. Yeah, I don't he actually wh- remember that bit from X of Swords. I don't think he was... 
uh, I would say rhyming and stealing, but apparently in Marvel parlance, it's rhyming and thieving, which kind of made me laugh. <laughs> that's I the unnatural well, I, I way to say that, it. Uh, I sent that uh, panel to Jim because I knew he would, he would enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the alt universe version. But yeah, of he was that he was a ramen dude. He was. He was okay. Yeah, because now it's like very the whole issue is with him, right? Doing it, and it's like nonstop. Well, it's only like seven pages of the issue that he's in, but it's kind of like I guess we have to call it the A story, yeah. even though it's less than half the book, and it, it's kind of not the more interesting part. But yeah, it is. It is the cover story. It is the one that takes up the most room. So uh, yeah. We saw him in the X of Tens events, where he faced off against Magic, the character Magic, in two different events. First, he beat her at arm wrestling back when they were doing the, the silly schmilly events, and then she defeated him in a more like stand-up fight. Uh, do you remember how he lost that fight? The very particular way he lost. I don't remember the exact specifics, but I thought she like went in his mouth or something. Yes, because he swallowed her, yeah. which we thought meant that she was dead. But that was dumb. That's how we found out that, oh. That's how you get into the suit. He's, he's inside a suit. So why would he invite her inside his armor? Because once yeah. she was inside, she beat the snot out of him and it was done. So Yeah. not Maybe not the smartest uh, orc little guy, Pogger Pod. Uh, so th that's why Magic is so familiar with him. Keeps talking about, oh, come on, cut it out. You know, again, this kind of weird characterization we've had for Magic for a while. This not very serious, nothing really matters. It, it's it's harkening back to her previous fights with him. And this is his first appearance, as far as I can tell, since the X of Tens event and the only appearance outside that event. So it's kind of, I'm getting, I'm thinking Jerry Duggan said, I got to have some kind of fight in this issue. Uh, crocodile guy, why not? So in this issue, he decides to do a little kind of a smash and grab on Game World, which just so happens to be the spot where the X-Men are just heading for a little R&R. &R. So wacky coincidence there. I also find this a little weird because... You know, it was, what, 12 issues ago, or maybe mm. it was 18 issues ago. The X it was 12, I think, is where you're going, yeah. On Game World, and they were fighting, what, Cordius, whatever his name is. Cordyceps Jones. There you go. Yeah, Cordyceps Jones. And you think that they wouldn't have fond memories of this gambling location based on that, but I guess they're back. <laughs> yeah, you'd think so. Now, that was issues 10, 11, and 12 of this volume of X-Men. And it was the final arc of the prior X-Men team before the 2022 Hellfire Gala. So I think, again, this is Jerry Duggan trying to make some sort of a, a relationship there, some sort of a, hey, remember, this is what we do at the end of a, a team. Yeah. I guess it's on purpose. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, a big blowout fight here. We find out that Pog or Pog has kids. Magic calls them Poglets, which I guess is a joke. And in the end, the X-Men don't even really win, right? He's not no. defeated. He's not arrested. He's bribed. Yeah, he sees some Mysterium necklace that Magic has, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'll take that and leave. And they're like, okay, great. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Also, he has to promise uh, not to fight the X-Men again. Don't know how enforceable that is in a court of law. <laughs> uh, and also, there's a vague notion that he now owes a favor to Forge. Yeah. Which, I don't know if that's... Uh, Jerry Duggan having a plan for Forge to call him that favor or just, you know, planting a little seed for another writer to, to pick on down the road. Yeah. And also, I guess this is Jerry Duggan trying to make Mysterium relevant again for the first time. It never really takes. Every once in a while they mention it's still a thing, but I always yes. forget about it until it, it gets brought up again and then I immediately forget about it again. I do laugh at the idea of this extremely valuable rare metal and they just make it into a necklace for magic. 
It seems like the least useful value for this. Well, I mean, she is. What's what's your title? She's like the head of the. Yeah, the commander. Commander, captain, commander of the. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So I mean, I I guess so. But you're you're right. Yeah, it's they're not very consistent in how rare it is or how valuable it is. Anything else to say about the Pog or Pog story? I was looking at his sword, and it has the kind of weird bendy shape that Genesis has. So it made me wonder, is that a, a menthe sword? It doesn't look that practical, right? It's kind of got like a thunderbolt bend in it. Yeah, I've seen things like that. I forget the name, but like in Egypt and other parts of the Middle East, I think there are swords that have that design to them. So I'm not sure if that's what they're trying to call back to. Just probably. makes me wonder, is he got some sort of Egyptian tie? I don't care that much about this character, though, so I'm not going to think about it too hard. But just That's probably out. wise. Very wise. <laughs> okay, moving on to our next bit. Uh, let's go to the beginning of the book, uh, which is all about Cable. Huh. So this is Young Man Cable, or at least kind of Young Man Cable. Yeah, this threw me off a lot because I thought this character was gone. Yeah, I think this is the first time we've seen a Cable this young since the end of the Jerry Duggan, Phil Noto Cable series. Yes. Now, he's a time traveler, so trying to figure out exactly where he is in his own timeline, kind of pointless. So, he's back in our <laughs> timeline now. I hate that, because I was like, does, I had two thoughts about this. Maybe I thought too much about this, but is this young Cable before he was replaced by old Cable, or did young Cable at that point in time just go back into the future, and then the old Cable that he at one point had killed, but then brought back because he realized he needed him to take on i don't remember who it was it strife or somebody time stream okay i don't don't think he died or anything but okay so he just he just realized at that point in time like oh i actually need the the, old guy back the gritty old one okay so this he needed to continue living to one day become the old guy and and keep the time loop going okay i think so this could be that one that had brought back the old cable that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking this is in the future of that kid cable's timeline that this kid cable would remember in the past having done that thing that we saw in in that series okay and this doesn't replace the old man cable who's hanging out on mars with i don't think so i think he's still doing his thing in x-men red okay so this cable back in our timeline and we're told very specifically it's just over 24 hours before the gala so planted we don't often get this this is when it's happening kind of timestamp, but this is very specific and he says conveniently to uh, his his AI assistant there, that he's out to prevent what he calls another mutant massacre. And to do that, he's about to put his foot up Orcus's ass. So uh, let's see how that works out for him. Uh, He breaks into an Orcus facility in the Rockies, uh, but it seems he was expected. This reminds me a lot of uh, Tony Stark breaking into that Stark Sentinels factory recently. Yes, yeah. Uh, He's met there by Omega Sentinel, evil robot Moira, and Nimrod himself. So, you know, the three robot types. Uh, Nimrod busts off Cable's mechanical arm, and then Dr. Stasis, who pops out of nowhere, pulls a Captain Cold and puts Cable on ice. So I guess Cable won't be putting any foots up any asses. Uh, Orgus will be doing what it was planning to do, and the Fall of X will be taking place as scheduled, which is probably good for Marvel, because they've got all these plans for that. If he ruined it, they'd have to go hold it. Yeah, but wouldn't that mean that Old Man Cable remembered this happening? Oh, uh, let's just say time travel and move on. Okay, I shouldn't think that hard about it. Time travel, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) So, at the very end of the scene, we get what I think is the most intriguing bit, which is just a little conversation between evil robot Moira and Dr. Stasis. They both have some things they're supposed to get done. They're not, you know, Orcus doesn't get along so well with each other. So Moira says, 
now I've delivered on my targets, which presumably Cable was one of her targets, uh, you have not. Do we know of any other targets that Moira would have leading up to the gala? I can't think of anything, but maybe I'm missing something. No, I guess this would be it. Although she hasn't really delivered on him, right? Because there's the old man version. Time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. travel, moving on. And I thought it was interesting, too, where they were like, we can't kill him because if we kill him, that'll bring all the cables to us, like some sort of beacon, right? Which is an interesting idea that they somehow seem to know what each cable is doing. Well, I don't know what each cable is doing, but probably in the past they tried to kill cable and that sets off an alarm, so... Yeah. I don't know why freezing him wouldn't set off the same alarm, but who knows yeah. time travel. Yeah. Dr. Stasis replies, I took out the Rasputin girl's power. Huh. Yeah, I don't know when that happened. No, I, but something happens at the end of the issue that may be referring back to this. So put a little pin in that one. Okay. Uh, I mean, the, the Rasputin girl has to be Ilyana Rasputin, a.k.a. Magic. I don't think there's any other Rasputin girl. Yeah. And then Stasis continues, who cares about Manifold? So Manifold was another one of Stasis's targets. And Moira says, I do, deeply. Humanity loses. Which, which side is she on? I forget. But she says, humanity loses if Manifold lives. So that's kind of crazy. Gambit is very important. You should all be rating that. <laughs> yeah, this, is this an actual continuity connection to that Rogan Gambit miniseries? Yes. Maybe, yes. kind of? Yeah. Well, we're going to get a little more on that in the next scene. Uh, which is Destiny and Rogue talking in the Central Park treehouse. Uh, hey, better make good use of that treehouse now, because we know it's not going to be around much longer. Uh, so in this scene, Destiny tells her daughter, Trust me, Rogue, Mutantism dies with Manifold. So again, Rogue and Gambit connection? We saw them have kind of this conversation in that issue. I guess this is after that issue, after that series? Hard, hard to say. Really don't know. I Yeah, I just felt like it had to be sort of around the time they had that first conversation, right? Like, they told her it was important, and maybe she was just like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, and then this is her. Now, the narration here says, at the same moment that Moira was ta- taking Kid Cable off the board, so this scene takes place at the same time as that scene. Yeah. That scene, we're told very specifically, is just over 24 hours before the gala. And I don't think we... I think we have to say that the Rogan Gambit book is before the fall of X. Right? So I think this scene must take place after Rogan Gambit. Oh, you think so? I don't see anywhere else it can fit unless Rogan Gambit, some part of it happens in this last 24 hours. This is a kind of a funny conversation then where it's like, yeah, I already know all that. <laughs> yep. Well, but we tried to save him yeah. and some stuff happened, right? And she's just like, ah, oh, I can't presume this. that everyone is reading <laughs> the Rogan Gambit miniseries, so they have to bring it up here. Yeah. So Rogue suggests that Destiny takes these concerns to the X-Men. Destiny says, uh, no can do. We dare not. There is a turncoat on the X-Men. And, quote, the X-Men will buckle under the weight of the war to come. So, hey, a lot there. Who do you think the turncoat's going to be? Yeah, so I was doing some research on this, and I think I buy what I read. So it's either, my initial thought was Forge. Okay. Uh, and the reason being primarily that he is long had like a affiliation with the U.S. government. and Yeah, and he said recently that he's not all in, right? He's holding back a little bit. So I, I can buy that. So that's where my, my mind went. Somebody else pointed out that Magic had been, uh, I guess, shot with the Stasis nano, nanobots right. in the right. last issue. So they're like, okay, that's a plausible option. Seems plausible, but that doesn't exactly seem like a traitor, right? That seems like maybe just you're able to deactivate this person. 
Yeah, that would be a funny word for that. Yeah, and then the other the other one that I well, I guess there's Firestar, right? They've they've not trusted her for a long time, but I, it's, that seems too obvious to me. Yeah, for story reasons, they're trying to you know show her growth as an X Men character. I don't think they would go yeah. there just. Just, you know, from outside the story reasons. And I don't think it's Gene, and I don't think it's Cyclops. Those just seem to... Yeah, they're, they're not getting along, but they're both loyal to the X-Men, at least in yeah. their own way. Yeah, so then that leaves you with... Um, oh, gosh, what's his name? Well, there's Talon, and then who's the other one? Sink. Sink, yeah. So I don't think it's Sink, because it feels like he's been kind of a central character in all of these issues. Mm-hmm. And his relationship with uh, Talon? No, with the, the other... With one of one of the many Wolverines, yes. Yeah, who's now going by Talon. Talon, to me, makes the most sense because she was captured, she was in the vault forever, and they rescued her, right? Like, you gotta imagine that the children of the vault could have implanted her with something. That makes a lot of sense. Or brainwashed her, right? So that's where I'm staking my beliefs that, like, that is gonna be the traitor. And also, I think, uh, more... That <laughs> this is wishful thinking on Ruben's part, but uh, I feel like this could be... Evidence of an X-Men Children of the Vault conflict. Well, we know there's a Genesis War coming up kind of any day now, so I thought that probably was to do with that, but could be yeah. the Children. We know there's a Children miniseries coming up, right? Yeah, I guess the thing is, if it's a, if it's a traitor during the Genesis War, there's nobody who's got like an Araco affiliation, right? So like, I don't see how that could be, and I don't know of anyone who's really got connections to Apocalypse. So, I, yeah. Not on the X-Men, no. So... That's where I'm going to go. I'm we're, all, we're told that Polaris, she's not on the X-Men, but also we're told very specifically here, once an X-Man, always an X-Man. So I guess she's yeah. kind of still in play. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. So maybe maybe the idea is it's none of the members on the actual team, and that was a clever scene to tell you, like, it could be anyone from the X-Men past that's not currently on the team. Could be. I mean, that really opens up a whole ton of possibilities. So who yeah. the hell knows? Yeah. Okay, so we get another prophetic pronouncement from Destiny, and we're going to take this one line by line, too. She says first, I see kings clashing in white, black, after the death of the Red Queen. Wow. So the Red Queen, at least the Red Queen that we know of, is Kate Pride, Queen of the Hellfire Club. The Black King of the Hellfire Club is Sebastian Shaw. The White Queen is Emma Frost, but we don't have a White King right now. Yeah. But... We do know from outside the book that our White Queen will be getting married. So maybe Tony Stark is the White King here? Interesting. That's my best guess, but not super confident. Uh, anything else to add to that prophecy? No, this this prophecy was too vague in general, and I just read it and I was like, okay, whatever. I'll look at this later. <laughs> I'll move on to the, the next line. Yeah. I see a Jovian bolt from the heavens. Now, Jove is Jupiter who throws lightning. So this storm does something with lightning. I think that's all this means. And then I see the stars ripped in half. Now, that doesn't sound good. Uh, could the stars mean something other than actual stars? Maybe is there a character we could say, oh, stars relates to? I couldn't come up with anything offhand. No. As it's Starfire. Firestar. Firestar has, yeah, Firestar has <laughs> the star on her, her shirt. Yeah. And then I hear the poisoning lies of the false captain. His rank earned. Okay, false captain's got to be the, the fake Captain Krakoa from pre comic book day. Uh, how does he earn his rank of captain? I don't know, but I, I guess I think that's got to be who this is. And then the last thing she says: the fool who speaks the truth will pay the price. Which could be anybody. Might even be destiny. Maybe destiny is going to pay a price 
for having this prophecy. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of stuff there. I mean, prophecies, writers love to play with prophecies so you can be all sorts of clever and vague and make things up after the fact, but that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, but I was I was definitely in rogue shoes when she was like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like the every reader perspective, right? Yeah, the first time I read through it, I did that. And then, then I went back and did a little more, a little more thinking about it. Again, like with time travel, maybe slightly too much. Yeah. Okay, next scene, Scott and Jean meet in this mental space. And this scene just really cements the idea that the two of them are not going to be together for a bit. As always, I wish this break in a relationship had been a little more skillfully told. But here we find out that Jean is upset that she helped remake a whole freaking planet, that'll be Mars slash Araco, and Scott hasn't even bothered to come visit it, which makes her, I don't know, sad, mad, kind of petty as well comes across <laughs> it. I mean, he's, he's been freaking busy. He's Scott yes. Summers. He's Cyclops. He's got stuff to do. He can't just go hang out on Mars. I understand he's got a history with her, but I am so ready for somebody to come up with a a better paramour for Scott Summers than Jean Grey. Well, that's not going to be Emma. And she's so freaking condescending to him all the time. It drives me nuts. And I get yeah. that she had like, you know, total cosmic awareness with her time as Phoenix, but yeah, it drives me insane. Even when she's like, oh, you sound very human. And then she's like, that's not a compliment. And I'm like, okay. Thanks. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was insulted by that. <laughs> Heck, some of my best friends are humans. Yes, yeah. I, I, God, I can't stand it. Scott her. also makes a pretty good point here. He says he's not really a, that big a fan of mutants living on Mars. Yes. Because it I, could be an excuse for humans to say, hey, mutants, you have your own damn planet. Get off our planet. I think that's yeah, a good point. I thought he made incredibly good points. And she's like, oh, Scott, you simple minded person. And I'm just like, shut up. Just go away, Jean Grey. Yeah. I'm so, so I sick think of you. we're both on team Cyclops was right here. <laughs> at least for this particular instance. Yes. Uh, oh, well. And I think that's all we have to say about this scene here. Let me say this. As much as I can't stand Jean, she has a very distinct voice. And kudos to the writers for making her sort of consistently reviled in my mind. <laughs> I, I think they do a really good job of like the characterization, even though I just don't like the character. That's a, a good observation. Yeah, it is It is good to have not all, it's not a Bendis thing where they all sound like each other. They do yes. have distinct voices, especially G. So that's yes. a good observation. Okay, now we're on to the very last bit of the issue with Sunfire. Uh, and we're told here by the omniscient narrator that, quote, Sunfire has been tasked by Arako to help find its voice, Redroot of the Forest. Yeah. Did we see that happen anywhere, or is this news to us? I feel like he... We saw that he left the team, right? Because he said he didn't feel like he was fulfilling his purpose just being right. an X-Man. And we knew he was going to Araka, but I don't think we actually saw any sort of communication between these characters. Okay. Also, don't know how he would communicate, right? The whole point was that Red Root was the one that could interpret. So yeah, well, it's sort of maybe unclear. Maybe Araka would stop. I, maybe they meant like the uh, the Great Ring of Araka told him to do this, but the Great Ring yeah. is in bad shape right now. Yeah. You know, lots of people dead, weird things going on. You know, storm back and forth, having trouble doing both their jobs. Yeah. So yeah, it. it it's, I think of all the things here, it might not matter too much exactly when this is happening. Just setting up a Sunfire story down the road, except for Magic uses her stepping disc powers to get Sunfire to other world to do this, and a weird thing happens. There's some turbulence. She falls on her keister, and uh, she oh she brushes it off. Oh no problem here. Yeah. But that made me think of what Dr. Stasis said way back in the cable scene, 
what does he say? He says, I took out the Rasputin girl's power. And here we see her power acting a little weird. Okay, so okay. that must be a connection, I think. That's it, yeah. I kept forgetting that she's a Rasputin, because I thought this was like Rasputin 4, and I was like, what the heck was no, he no, talking about? No, no, she's a Colossus. Oh, oh, the Rasputin girl. That's the un- other Rasputin girl, yeah. Yeah, okay. Colossus's sister, though, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's what's going could, on. It could be a red herring, but... No, no, that, that makes I think much probably sense. It. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, and then we, you know, we turn the piece. He says, oh, I'll be, I'll be in and out. Should be quick. You know, of course. And we turn the page, and it says, X months later. Whether that's X as in 10 or X as in unknown, probably could go either way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he's he's found Redroot. Hey, good job there. Clutching this tiny version of Redroot to his chest. But I think it's snowing, and he's... It's been a while later. He's enough time for him to get kind of really shaggy hair and a beard. Yeah. And he's losing power, and he's apparently about to die there in a snowstorm. Yeah. So, oops. Not so great there for him. And interestingly, we're told in the footnote that Sunfire versus Otherworld continues in X Men Unlimited, yeah. the series of the in the app, which I don't think we've been pointed from the actual main book to the web first books on the app before, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting, and it makes me think, oh, was I supposed to be reading those? I'm going to have to fill in the gaps, right? Since I guess so, yeah. X-Men Green knocked me off of that one. I, I yeah. couldn't get past that, so I don't yeah, know what I else will happen since then. But definitely not. I'm wondering if there's like a jumping on point where I could just skip 20 or 30 issues and continue this well, if the Sunfire stories start soon, that'll probably be a good jumping on point. Okay, so uh, to wrap this up, uh, the art here Joshua Kassar is not my favorite style. I don't like the way he draws facial expressions. That's kind of a me problem. It's it's certainly not badly done. It's just not my favorite. Yeah. The colors look particularly nice. Particularly, I like the backgrounds of the Scott and Jean scene. We're in kind of a mental space. Yeah. So a uh, shout out to colorist Frank Martin there. The central pog or pog story, I could take or leave. Disposable. But I really enjoyed the other breadcrumbs that Duggan lays out in the future. And that's where I got my enjoyment from this issue. So. uh how about you? What was your favorite scene here? Uh, let's see, favorite scene. Um, Cable, you got your prophecy. I mean, you didn't like the prophecy yeah, and all that. Yeah. I thought the, the idea of there being a traitor was big. And okay. I actually kind of enjoyed some of the Sunfire. You know, I hate to say, I hate to admit I enjoyed another world scene, right? But it looked interesting to me. <laughs> I'm like, how did he get this guy? And. Hey, you know at least there's on. no Saturnine here. I, if that's that would drop me out of any story, I am done with Saturnine forever. And I and I kind of enjoyed the scene with Polaris um, at the treehouse and Jean kind of talking to her, and she's upset about losing her father, right? That he can't be brought back. That's kind of rational, right? Yeah, that was pretty touching. Although I did kind of like sort of roll my eyes. There's like all this X Men stuff going on, and they got this like distraught former team member. They say, "Yeah, just go lay in that room and cry." We'll check in on you periodically. Yeah, now you can't be here too long because this whole treehouse is about to go up in flames, <laughs> by the way. Not that we know she's that. She's walking in. She's like, uh, we need that rent check. <laughs> How's our insurance <laughs> on this place? Yeah, I understand you got some issues, but yeah, just stay here. I mean, I, none of that actually happened, but um, it kind of made me laugh. But So, yeah, overall, despite the A story being kind of a dud, there's a lot of other things here. My first read through, I thought, hey, we're going to get through this story in like five minutes. Not a lot to talk about. But my second trip through, there are all these little pieces. So, overall, for giving me a lot to think about, I'm going to give this uh, seven and a half out of ten. Yeah, that's where I am. When I read it, I was probably more feeling like it was a six, eight. But there is a lot here. This wasn't like a wasted issue. And 
good on them, especially leading into like what's clearly the big event that's going to change everything. Yep, there is there is stuff there if you want to dig for it a little bit. You could read through this very quickly and think it's a nothing book, but there, there's more there. Yeah. So yeah, now next issue, I guess it'll be after whatever happens in the uh, the gala, and I don't know exactly how that affects how we're going to get a new team. But there was a fan vote that's already in place, so one of these characters will be on the team. Jubilee, Juggernaut, Prodigy, Dazzler, Cannonball, and Frenzy. Now, I've heard some rumors about Juggernaut being the one to make it, which kind of makes sense. He's probably one of the more popular of those characters. So, which could be complicated because he was on the Legion, and then we also saw him being mind-controlled in in, uh, Rogue and Gambit, so... We'll see if they can make that continuity work. It's consolation for forgetting about him. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, we forgot about Kane Marco. Let him get captured. Never looked for him. How are we going to make this right? Get him on the team. Just tell If him. they can make Rogan Gambit be important, you know, uh, uh, Eric likes to say, oh, this is now the most important book in all of DC Comics. Like, uh, yeah. oh, the daughter of Deathstroke, whatever her name is. Like, oh, that's the, the most important book in... Yeah. Uh, in Ravager. Uh, Night Terrors with a K, Ravager? Maybe. Maybe maybe Rogan Gambit is the most important book in the X-Men line. It, it, spoiler, it is not. It very much <laughs> is not. That would be very bad if it was. <laughs> okay, moving on to our second and final book. This is X-Men, colon, Before the Fall, M-Dash, The Sinister Four. Written by Kieran Gillen, art by Paco Medina, not Lucas Wernick, who usually does the Kieran Gillen uh, immortal stuff. Colors by Edgar Delgado and Fair Cifuentes Suho. Now, I'm not sure why they need two colorists. There's a prologue bit set in the 1850s. There's some sepia tone panels, so maybe one of them is really good at that. Doesn't Hard, hard to say. It doesn't say who did what. Letters by Clayton Cowles and designed by Tom Muller, once again, with Jay Bowen. So this is a funny kind of an issue. Uh, Kieran Gillen in his newsletter says he considers it an immortal X-Men annual, and that he expects to be part of the next collected edition of Immortal, which I guess that makes sense. Also, the title is a damn lie. This is not <laughs> the Sinister Four. This is a story about two of those four Sinisters, Dr. Stasis and Mother Righteous, right? It's about Dr. Stasis. We have Orbis Stellaris who shows up. Yeah, one panel in the epilogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they talk about our, our Nathaniel. They mentioned, but this is about Dr. Stasis trying to deal with the revelation that Mother Righteous is a version of Nathaniel Essex's wife, Rebecca, and it's about Mother Righteous trying to exploit that relationship to worm herself into Orcus's good graces, right? That's, that's really what's going on here. Now, this story is also about identity. It's not in some of the modern senses that can be annoying, but in an in X-Men kind of sense. It's made clear to the reader that while these two sinisters were made from Nathaniel and Rebecca Essex, they are not Nathaniel and Rebecca Essex. They're just clones with a few genetic modifications and implanted false memories of events that happened to somebody else, which is a dangerous point to make in this current era because you know who else is just a clone with a few modifications and implanted false memories? Professor X, Nightcrawler, <laughs> Wolverine, the other Wolverine, the other other Wolverine, yeah. and damn near everybody on Krakoa, right? Most of the Quiet Council, most of the X-Men, yeah. they're in the same position, which, again, it's been my position from the beginning that, hey, if you're resurrected and implanted memories, you're not the same person anymore. Yeah. Man, it'd be so wild if, like, we, after the fall, they're just, like, everyone who's a clone and died is, like, cannot be 
in Marvel Comics anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who would be left. You'd have, it'd be like Firestar. <laughs> Hope you like X Men. It's Firestar and Storm, famously, right? <laughs> yeah, there Juggernaut. Wouldn't be, there wouldn't be a lot of people. That's the team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it seems too much, too on the nose for it not to be what Kieran Gillen wants to think about. But yeah. also bring that too much to the front would just tear down all of X-Men comics right now. So I don't think it's supposed to be that clear, but I can't help but think about it. Yeah. Let me say this really quick, uh, and and maybe this is not the right time to say it, but I'll say it anyways. I appreciate this issue for one thing. I really had a hard time distinguishing Dr. Stasis from the Nathaniel that we're more familiar with, the Diamond version. Yes. And so... Because the other ones kind of had like cosmic and mystic powers, right? So it was like, okay, I can see that. And now we know that Mother Righteous is like not even a Nathaniel clone, but she's um, Rebecca, right? So it's been easy to distinguish the others. Um, I really liked the idea of, of them explaining that, oh, Dr. Stasis is a version with his like humanity back or his like morality back. Like, oh, okay, now I get it. He, he would be similar, but very different. Yeah, I'm not sure if I would describe him quite that way as having his morality emotions back emotion sure he is yeah. we do get a lot more of his character in this than we ever had before which is one of the major uh wins of this book and we also we knew more about mother righteous but we also see a different side of her in this book that we haven't seen before so yeah it's very as a character study it's it's super successful he's very chauvinistic i'll say that we get that well, he was he was born in the 1800s right yes yes what are you gonna do uh, so we should probably go over the events of the actual stories such as they are. It's it's a date night tale. Mother Righteous wants in with Orcus, and Dr. Stasis is her way in. There are two criteria she has to meet. One of them gets written down on a piece of paper we don't get to see, because it's a secret, but something that Mother Righteous describes as, quote, asking for the moon. The second criterion is that Mother Righteous stick around to have a dinner date with Dr. Stasis. Uh, I'm pretty sure he added that one himself. So she plays along, even transforming her outfit into this sleek white dress, including a pair of shoes. So she is actually wearing shoes throughout this this issue. I, I check her feet every time now. I can't help it. Really, it's not my thing, I promise, but I, I can't help it. So uh, they share some wine, some Hulk steak, yum yum, and some banter with Stasis acting kind of desperate to impress her, right? To win over her affections. Which, like yeah. you say, is a side of his character we haven't seen before. Yes. Uh, we get some flashback panels that I think we've seen this trick played too many times with Marvel. Oh, these brand new characters were actually around the whole time. Every Who wasn't at the, the uh, formation of the Incredible Hulk at this point? Every character was actually there in the background somehow. I don't know how they could all fit. So yeah, we see Dr. Stasis there at the gamma bomb accident that created the Hulk uh, in the early days of the Super Soldier Serum with Captain America at the Science Museum when a spider bit Peter Parker. Oh, Kind of very obvious moments. I uh, I wish they could have something less obvious. They do have one uh, that seems to be much more recent because it's in that face shield costume we, costume we saw him in, standing outside the entrance to the vault, as in the children of the vault. vault. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Now, he doesn't seem to have been very active in any of these events, but he was he was there. Yeah, he's been around a long time. And then we see on the facing page what Mother Righteous has been doing. We see her inside apocalypse's tomb with him still resting you think she's waking him up or just kind of sightseeing any ideas it's a mind bender for me because at what point is this right like is is there some weird statement that she's like creating mr sinister because apocalypse created mr sinister right 
Right. But Apocalypse, after the events of the further adventures of this guy and that lady, uh, he had to go back to sleep. He was all worn out. Yeah. So this must be then. Yeah. Because the other Essexes were created when the original Essex died shortly after becoming Mr. Sinister, I guess. Yeah. And then the four of them all popped out of their pods. Yeah. So I think that's... This is like early 1900s. Just seeing him, I'm assuming something else is going on. Hard to say, but yeah, it's, it's a very interesting, a lot of stories to be written about what's going on there. Yeah. Next, we see her reading a bedtime story to Tommy and Billy Maximoff, Wanda's twins, the Scarlet Witch's kids, the ones who, oh, I forget all the retcons, but like they were real and they weren't real and they were a figment and they're back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think Billy's gone, but Tommy's still around. Is that right? I think Tommy's Wiccan, right? I think one of these kids is Wiccan. The other one was, he had those speed powers that I don't think are around anymore. Like Quicksilver? Like Quicksilver, right. Okay. So next, she's reading The Dark Hole, this powerful magic book that we also saw in the Sinister Timeline. She looks like she's writing in it or maybe just holding a quill <laughs> pen so that she can take notes. I don't know, the margins or I don't, I don't know, but she's definitely reading The Dark Hole. Just graffiti. <laughs> drawing smiley faces mother righteous was here yeah <laughs> of people and mustaches <laughs> and then finally she's having a meeting with the demon i think this is the demon belasco the one who was the ruler of limbo before magic okay now what's going on in this crystal ball between them is that the xavier mansion there's some sort of a big building big fancy looking building i don't know what yeah, else yeah i think i think it is which would make sense that they'd be spying on the x-men yeah. But again, the idea here is that she's been around for a while and that she's kind of been mixed up in all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So at this point, Mother Righteous tells Dr. Stasis about the existence of Orbis Thalaris, the sinister of space. And Stasis here is, is really surprised. Maybe a little too surprised, right? <laughs> it should be predictable. Hey, we have three of us with three suits, one more later. So yeah, yeah. Hold, hold that thought. We're going to have a, a return to that, about, that about how why he was so surprised that Orbis Thalaris is out there. Yeah. She then shows him one of the volumes of secrets that she got from the Sinister Timeline, and we, the readers, get to see a redacted page from the Fall of the House of X book that we saw back in, oh, the first Before the Fall uh, single issue. Now, this is a weird juxtaposition because the page that we see can't be the same page that Sinister is looking at. He's looking at information from the Sinister Timeline, and the page we see is not from the Sinister Timeline. It even references the sinister timeline by name as a different timeline. So yeah. it's weird that, hey, I'm showing you a page, and then they show us a page, but they're not the same page. Yeah. Confused me. Yeah. Uh, so this is the first page of a title uh, called Chapter 8, If You're Feeling Sinister, which Matt Razor over on the Slack, and hey, if you're on the Patreon, please join us on the Slack. Matt tells me that that's a reference to a Bell and Sebastian song, who is some sort of a Scottish band from the 90s and forward, I think. Now, I wouldn't know Bell and Sebastian from Peaches and Herb, so that one went over my head, but... Yeah, I don't know, but that's cool. I, I've heard the name, but... I have not heard the name. I'll check it out. A UK band, and, you know, Kieran Gillen likes to make the music references, so that certainly fits with, with his MO. Yeah. Now, there's not really a whole lot of information here for us, other than perhaps a reference to a later chapter at the end, which we're told is titled Chapter 12, Rise of the Powers of X, which... That could be that could be anything. We have you know, Powers of X was the original Hawks and Pox book. It could be could be absolutely anything, which is why Kieran Gillen lets us read it because he can make it mean whatever he wants. So, what do you think of this book? This 
Fall of the House of X by Redact. This is a data page that I just don't like, this style. It just seems like he took his script notes and redacted it and posted it, so it's sort of too too like fourth wall for me to really like. I like that it's an actual physical thing that would exist in the world, but it wouldn't exist for kind of a long time after the book we're reading. So I'm not yeah. quite sure how we're seeing the it. The narrative of it is just bizarre the way it's written too. I don't know what perspective it is and who's writing it, right? Well, I'm sticking with my guess that it's Ben Yurick who's writing it, but But the thing I did the the biggest Easter egg here for me is the idea that there's a rise of X. That almost sounds like rise follows the fall, right? And so for all the people saying, oh, this is the end of Krakoa, it's like, okay, well, sounds like it's not. <laughs> it does say rise, but it's rise of the powers of X, which whether that's a restoration of Krakoa or something entirely different, it, it could go either way, I think. So after Stasis looks at Mother Righteous's book, she asks him for a thank you, which is, you know, that's what she collects after all. And does Dr. Stasis say thank you? Oh my no. goodness, does he? He says, <laughs> everything I do is in thanks to you. And yeah. by you here, he means Rebecca, but to him, Mother Righteous is Rebecca. Yeah. I do everything for you. You are everything. Now that's, I mean, if, if thanks are powerful, that's the most powerful thing she's ever collected. And Mother Righteous is even surprised by this. You can see in her face, which is, is drawn very nicely there. And she says to him, oh, thank you. I don't think we've seen Mother Righteous say thank you to someone else before. So I don't know how this is going to interact with her whole thanks powers. But yeah. it seems like a big moment. Yeah. So after this, they begin the more active part of their date night, not in a sexy way. Uh, they go back to the old ex Essex mansion where they, or the people whose memories they have, you know, whoever they are, where those people lived so long ago. And we find out neither of them had ever been back before. They repair the headstone at the grave of Rebecca and the children, and Mother Essex reveals that the baby girl who died would have been named Morgan. I don't know if that detail is important, but it is It is touching, right? It reminds us of the really painful moments that these characters went through and that they remember, even if it wasn't necessarily actually them. A cool yeah. little scene. Did you like that scene? I did, yeah, because, again, this helps me distinguish stasis from classic mr sinister who you know basically burned out the sentiment out of his mind i can't i can't imagine that nathaniel being like kind of wistful of those days those yeah either people. burned it out or pushed it way 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 down where yeah. this one has more of his i would just say his heart on his sleeve but he really has a club on his forehead so yeah can't say that okay so finally they go off together to perform the task that orcus wants from mother righteous Way back on page eight, we learned about that. That was the one she called Asking for the Moon. And it turns out that this was a little more literal than I might have thought. What they want is the return of Selene, the character we saw join the Quiet Council about a month ago in Immortal 12. And we said, hey, wasn't she dead? And they kind of blew off, eh, death, whatever. This, we find out how she comes back, which is pretty cool. Mother Righteous uses a captive god of death in one of her little glowy balloons. Uh, this god of death comes from a culture that died out about 4,000 years ago. They do get Selene back, but first they have to fight, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it, Charon or Karen, the, the death god of the Romans who lived in Britain only about 2,000 years ago. So he has kind of precedence. So the two of them work together to do this, uh, which is a cool little teamwork scene. And at the end, they're about to smooch, but then Selene makes them feel self-conscious. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I like the, the sort of stuff they used to fight him, right? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Like he has a Captain America orb that he like pim parches. Yeah, it's like it's pretty cool. Yeah, they do act like a like a couple working together here, which is a nice thing to see. Really makes them seem different from 
from just, oh, what's another version of Mr. Sinister? And this explains how, how Celine got back. Which, which I cool never too. expected we'd get explained. I thought it was just going to be, oh, she's an external. She, she comes back. It's what she does. And yeah, yeah, Celine even says that, yeah, I would have made my own way back eventually. And that she kind of, she plays off, oh, I was enjoying the rest of being dead. But uh, now we know that Celine owes her resurrection directly to Mother Righteous and Orcus. Yeah. And because of her character, she's probably not going to be 100% loyal to them because she's not 100% loyal to anybody. Yeah. But having her on the Quiet Council, huge win for Orcus. Yeah. So, almost done. We get one more Fall of the House of X page, and this one is like 95% redacted just to mess with us. Yeah. Just, just to say, ha ha, I'm not going to tell you things. Now, a couple of tidbits. Uh, we do confirm that Mother Righteous becomes an Orcus affiliate, with Nimrod being the only vote against her. So expect some friction between the two of them. Yep. Orcus does not learn that Mother Righteous is a clone of Rebecca Essex, though. That's kept only to Dr. Stasis. And I think that's all we really get from this this page. Did you see anything else of interest here, or you just hate this whole concept? They use the phrase magic circles would, and then were redacted again. So whether that's magic circles or like people in the world of magic, who knows? It's just Kieran Gillen really laughing at us. Ha ha ha. Okay, so we have one last page here, really an epilogue. It's set on Phobos, which is where Phalong set up his base to keep an eye on what the mutants do on Mars. So, remember how shocked and surprised Stasis was to hear about the existence of Orbis Talaris? Yeah, that was an act. Uh, <laughs> these two Essexes have already been in some kind of cahoots. Yeah. So, Stasis is, at least here, he's playing it off to Orbis Talaris that he's not quite as lovey-dovey for Mother Righteous as he led her to believe. He says, I do everything for her, but she needs to realize that it does not mean I do everything she wants. And he closes by recalling their marriage vows. Again, they're not really married, but to him they are. Specifically, she re he remembers her vow to him to obey, which I don't see her doing a lot of obeying. So that's <laughs> going to be a point of contention. Yes. So overall, I thought this was a really good issue. Clearly yeah. the best of the four before the fall books. Yes. Uh, it, it feels like an annual and a, a, one of the best kinds of annuals, the side story that takes just a couple characters from the main book and kind of illuminates what makes them tick and does some things that are going to be important in the main book. So, yep. a success all around. Yep. It's really fun for, for me to hear you kind of explain what all the, you know, flashback scenes were. I didn't totally track with what they were, but you didn't really need to know all those. You didn't need to. And uh, to be honest, I got that from an article on the Marvel website itself. Yeah. So, it should be pretty accurate because at least that's what Marvel is saying. The only bit that was a little funky for me in those scenes is when they superimpose stasis in the scenes with that we where we already knew Nathaniel was kind of active. Yes. Where I'm like, you wouldn't notice your clone <laughs> in the same room with you. You're like, oh, that's weird, right? Yeah, the things that uh, we we've seen in other flashback scenes where he was working with oh, what was the name of that project? The one in is it Alamogordo? Yeah, the, the, the genetic stuff that he was doing back in the Atomic Age. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the Paco Medina art I thought was great as always. Uh, I, I think the last time we saw his work was in Sins of Sinners or Dominion. And his yeah. style is pretty similar to Lucius Wernick, makes him a good choice for, you know, something in the immortal kind of a range. Now, I really like the panel of Mother Righteous sending that glowing orb off to re retrieve Selene. Yeah. Now, this is where, and I, I could be making this up, I could be crazy, but I think that one panel is an intentional reference to, you ready? The movie 
It's a Wonderful Life. Have you ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart? I have, but I, I don't see this connection. So Okay. Lay it uh, on let me. me lay it on you. You can tell me just how crazy I am. So, in an early scene in that movie, because they go through you know George's whole life, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, offers to, quote, lasso the moon for his girl Mary. Mm. And later on, Mary gives George a drawing, a caricature of him lassoing the moon. And to me, this panel looks like that drawing. And there's all those moments of Mother Righteous saying, what did she say about the moon? She has to give me the moon. Uh, yeah, it was all about getting getting the moon for them. So, you asked the moon of me or something like that? Yes, you asked the moon of me. So you asked for the moon. It's not a British movie. You know, Kieran Gillen's references are usually lean more to the British side. But I'm, I'm going to say that somewhere in his script that he gave to Paco Medina, he says, yeah, this is from It's a Wonderful Life. Could be nuts. Could be crazy. Made me think of it. Though. Looks cool, regardless. It does look like a cool panel. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, I love this issue. Can't wait to see what happens next in Immortal. I want to see more of these characters now that I know them. So I'm going to go up to a 8.5 out of 10. Yeah, I'm right there with you. This was a great issue when I read it. I was just like, wow, this is really good. It sort of made me sad to think that Kieran Gillen is stepping back from kind of show running or, you know, slowly exiting the X world because I think he's really good at telling these stories with these characters and making me care about them. Yeah, he's, I would call him the, the best writer we've had on X-Men you know, since Hickman back in the beginning. We did really like uh, Zeb Wells on Hellions, but that was kind of a side story where this really feels like this is Gillen driving the plot forward for the whole line. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also kind of laughing about these uh, Mother Righteous Boots issue now. <laughs> now that I'm looking at it, I, I, I missed it, but I'm definitely not going to miss it next time. <laughs> oh, we're, we're both footmen now. My goodness. Okay, so that was this week. Pretty positive week. Now, we yeah, don't always love the books, but, but I was happy with these. Uh, let's hope we're just as positive next week. Uh, we have yeah, probably three books to talk about. We do have Immortal X-Men number 13. I presume that's why Lucas Wernick didn't draw this one, because there's another Immortal book you know, right on his heels. This is going to feature Doug Ramsey, which he's not technically a member of the Quiet Council, but he's always there and he's a big part of it so that'll be that'll be pretty cool looking forward to that like the most than- important the most important book of the x-men line <laughs> oh, oh that's coming up that is coming up uh we have x-force number 42 first which should be wrapping up the ghost calendars arc uh features some kind of beast nimrod hybrid maybe according to the cover yeah, yeah. haven't been loving that arc maybe it, it ends well and then yes the most important book in x-men Rogue and Gambit, number five of five, will wrap up that storyline that I kind of forget. Uh, Rogue has a thing implanted in her, controlling her, and if you take it out, she dies. Yeah. But she's not going to die, so I'm not too late. Yeah. But that's what we'll talk about next week. So, uh, hey, I guess we're at the end of the show. I guess spoilers, she didn't die <laughs> because we saw her. <laughs> I mean, she could be resurrected. It is okay. Krakoa. Yeah. Uh, but just remind me, Ruben, what is it, if you remember from having taken all that time off, what yeah. is it that we say at the end of every show? Read more X-Men comics. 